Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Daily Duff Differently. My name is Carl Perkins, and today we're going to be studying the 23rd folio page of Tractate Kitubot. Um, As we've discussed a a little bit over the past several days, today we're going to be examining the Talmudic rules of evidence regarding testimony concerning women in captivity, or that is to say, women who have been released from captivity. Now, if you're just beginning your study of this tractate today, you may be wondering why this discussion is uh, here at all, in a tractate whose name, Kitubot, or marriage contracts, suggests that it's primarily focused on marriage. Um, It's here because women who had been taken captive in antiquity were presumed to have been violated while in captivity. And that would render them unsuitable to marry a Kohen, or a priest, a descendant of the priestly caste. And so it was important in ancient days to determine whether or not a woman was to be deemed chaste or violated. Now, we've already seen that in the event that a woman is the only source of information that she had been taken captive, then if she goes ahead and states that she was not violated, well, she's believed, based on the principle of hapeh she'asar hu hapeh shehitir, where the mouth that forbade is the mouth that releases. Uh, How so? Well, by stating that she had been taken captive, her own mouth implicated her. But that same mouth can therefore release her by declaring that she is tehora, or pure. That is, that she has not had sexual relations with anyone. Uh, We begin with the Mishnah at the top of the page. We're told that two women were taken captive. Okay, that must mean that that fact is presumably well known. And now one of them says, I was taken captive and I am pure. I wasn't violated. And the other one says, I was taken captive, and I am pure. In such a case, neither is believed. Uh, Why is that? Because the presumption, inasmuch as they were taken captive, is that each was raped. And a woman's testimony about herself does not challenge, or does not successfully challenge, that assumption, or that presumption. But the Mishnah continues, It says, if each woman should go ahead and testify on behalf of the other, then they are both believed, meaning that they're both considered to be pure. Why is this? Because even though neither woman can testify on behalf of herself, each can testify on behalf of the other woman. Ordinarily, two witnesses would be necessary to overcome a presumption like the one we're discussing. But when it comes to prisoners, the rabbis were lenient and accepted the testimony of even only one person, and a woman at that. Okay, that's the Mishnah, and as confusing as that might have seemed, it's actually simple compared to the Gemara. The Gemara presents a similar text, but as it goes on, it actually seems more like a brain teaser. It presents a Baraita, a Tanaitic source not found in the Mishnah, which goes as follows. Two women come back from captivity. 
And one of them states, I am impure, but my friend is pure. So if a person, if a woman comes back and says that, she is believed. But if she says, I am pure, and my friend is not pure, she is not believed. Let's say they come back and the woman says, I and my friend are both impure. What then? Well, she's believed as to herself, but she is not believed as to her friend or companion, the other woman. Uh, if they come back and this woman says, I and my friend are both pure, she's believed as to her friend. She is not believed as to herself. Now, let's look at each one of these in turn and see why they make sense. Let's see, if the woman says, I am impure and my friend is pure, she's believed because concerning herself, she's simply confirming the assumption, but concerning her friend, she is countering the presumption that her friend is impure, which she can successfully do as a single person. Uh, similarly, if she says, I am pure and my friend is not pure, she's not believed, and that's fairly obvious. Uh, you can do a simple analysis of each of these different um, statements in the Baraita, and the Talmud goes ahead and, and looks at that, but then the Talmud does what it often does, which is to focus on what I, I would call hidden assumptions. What are the hidden assumptions in this uh, interesting Baraita? Uh, for example, does the text assume that there are witnesses around to testify that these two women were taken captive and, and that are prepared to testify as to what happened to the women in, in captivity or not? Well, the Talmudic Amora known as Abaye, a very, very prominent fourth-generation Amora, says, you know, um, I'm looking at this and I'm saying that the assumption is that there must be witnesses for the first part of this text and there must be witnesses for the last part of the text. But for the part where, where the woman says, I and my friend are impure, she's believed as to herself but not as to her friend, uh, he says that seems to be clear that there must not be any witnesses there, otherwise it wouldn't make sense. So his uh, assumption or his conclusion regarding whether there are witnesses, uh, whether there are presumed to be witnesses uh, to this um, circumstance is that there are witnesses to the first part of the Baraita and witnesses to the last part of the Baraita, but no witnesses to the part in the middle. Now, Rav Papa, a fifth generation of Mora, says, no, 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 that doesn't make sense. Um, it doesn't make sense because generally you don't have a Baraita that has one assumption at the beginning and another assumption in the middle and another assumption at the end. But he says that, that, that Abaye's analysis has assumed that if there is a witness, that witness agrees with the woman. If we don't assume that, in fact, if we assume the contrary, if we assume that there is a witness to each one of these statements, but the witness does not agree with the woman, then you can argue that there is a witness for each part of this Baraita. Now, I had considered uh, sharing with you piece by piece all of the units of this Baraita. Let me just do one or two, uh, just to give you the hang of it. In the first case, the woman says, I am impure and my friend is pure. The witness goes ahead and says, you are pure and your friend is impure. What happens? Well, the woman has condemned herself, or she has you know, um, essentially uh, admitted that she is impure. Uh, 
But her friend or her companion who has been declared pure by her friend is deemed pure, even though there is a witness that disputes her. And we look at the next clause. If a woman says, I am pure and my friend is impure, and the witness says, you are impure and your friend is pure, then she's deemed to be impure because since there are witnesses, the woman is not believed when she says about herself that she's pure. But her friend is released by the testimony of that one witness who declares her to be impure. Um, as I said, I, I had considered sharing my analysis of the next two clauses of the Baraita, but I, I, I think it's just too difficult um, to follow in, the f in, in this context, the, f the context of a podcast. You really have to look at the text in front of you, and you probably have to pick up a pen and a paper or a, a keyboard and actually write out the different possibilities. Um, the fact that that's necessary suggests that really this is some kind of an intellectual exercise. And um, I really do believe that certain portions of Talmudic analysis are really designed to sharpen the mind of the reader or the studier of that page. And this is one of them. I really don't think it was necessary to um, record all of this material, um, but it certainly has pedagogic value. Um, I hope you can keep it straight because indeed we've run out of time. If you'd like to review this material, again, I'd recommend that you take a look at the Talmud text itself. Uh, thank you for listening. This concludes my participation in Daily Daf Differently, at least for now. Enjoy the remaining Dapim of Tractate Kedubot, and I wish you well continuing on through to the end of the entire Talmud. Shalom, shalom. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epic Horus album One Bead available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.